Keisha Gunter, and you're listening to Roar, an energetic and enlightening weekly podcast that will help you achieve more. This weekly infusion of candid insights, indispensable lessons, inspiring stories, and success strategies for living your best life now will help you on your journey to making your dreams a reality. My experience as a Fortune 50 business and tech executive has led me to meet some pretty amazing people. On Roar, I share real talks with top executives, thought leaders, luminaries, authors, and entrepreneurs who are passionate about building the next generation of inspired, empowered, game-changing leaders. Are you ready to fear less and move into your dream life? Let's Roar! Welcome to Roar. I'm your host, Lakeisha Gunter. So what do I mean by Roar? The beauty of Roar is that it's both an acronym. The acronym stands for Reflection, Opportunity, Action, and Relationships. And it's an action. We are all born with it. A hidden power inside of us. It is a fire that is often suppressed by fear. That power is your Roar, and it's waiting to be unleashed. Today, I'm excited to talk about owning your seat at the table. As we shared on the last episode, there are very few women of color seated at decision-making tables across numerous industries, including the financial services industry. My guest today, Rakaya Adams, is a trailblazer in the field of financial services, investment, and institutional asset management, and she has secured a seat at numerous tables of influence, power, and decision-making. Rakaya is the Chief Investment Officer at Meyer Memorial Trust, one of the largest charitable foundations in the Pacific Northwest. She's responsible for leading all investment activities to ensure the long-term financial strength of the organization. Before joining Meyer, Rakaya ran the $6.5 billion capital markets fund at The Standard, a publicly traded company. At The Standard, she oversaw six trading desks that included several bond strategies, preferred equities, derivatives, and other risk mitigation strategies. Rakaya is the chair of the prestigious Oregon Investment Council, the board that manages approximately $100 billion of public pension and other assets for the state of Oregon. During her tenure as chair, the Oregon State Pension Fund has been the top performing public pension fund in the United States. This top-of-class performance was made possible by a series of strategic changes led by Rakaya that boosted returns and decreased risk. Rakaya holds a BA with academic distinction from Carleton College and a JD from Stanford Law and an MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Throughout her tenure as Chief Investment Officer, she's delivered top quartile performance and beginning in 2017, her team hit its stride, delivering an 18.6% annual return, which placed her in the top 5% of foundation and endowment CIOs. She has often been the first Black woman to earn an achievement to open closed doors and break through glass ceilings to pave the way. She is using her power and influence to ensure that she's not the last. She's made it to the top and she's sending the elevator back down to bring up more people who look just like her. She is passionate about owning her seat at the table and driving lasting change, both in the makeup of the table and the impact of the table. Yes, yes, she's a super bad African-American woman who's earned not just a place at the table, but the chair at the head of it. With that, let's welcome Rakaya to the show. Welcome, Rakaya. 
Hey, Lakeisha, how are you? Oh my gosh, I'm so great. I was so looking forward to our time today. It's been way too long, right? <laughs> I know, I know. You know, social media makes me feel like I'm talking to you every day. I read your posts and then I'm like, wait a minute. I actually haven't had a chance to talk with her, like really, really talk with her in a while. I know, I tell you, but I so love to your point, just being able to follow each other and just kind of supporting each other from afar. But again, this has been a joy and excitement for me all day. Um, And I know we're going to talk about the importance of the day in so many ways, especially with it being Black Women's Equal Pay Day, right? And so I want to definitely get into that conversation because I know you're doing a lot of work in that regard. But as I share with my audience, you're a super bad sister. I mean, you're just making things happen in the financial services, investment and asset management business. So we're going to get to that. But I love and I adore you. And um, I think all of Portland does. And so I just want to give my audience an opportunity to just learn a little bit more about your background and who you are and where you come from. So share a little bit of that with us, if you don't mind. Yeah, I say I'm a homegirl from around the way. And I'm from the streets, not the hood. So I grew up in Northeast Portland when at that time it was largely black and brown. Mm -hmm. And, you know, looking back on it, people would have said it was um, poor, not working class. but I was surrounded by a lot of love, a lot of people who, uh, when young kids start to show promise, will learn to teach them things and and augment the educational experience. So even though we were cash poor, I felt like I was community rich, like deep, lovely, wonderful community. So I grew up in Northeast Portland. My family migrated to the Pacific Northwest in the Great Migration from Louisiana. Uh, My mother's family, my father's family is, is a combination of North African immigrants and people from Alabama. So I have a kind of a pan-African ethnicity, but grew up in a largely black and brown community in in Northeast Portland. I went to a school called Martin Luther King Elementary School, and I went to Harriet Tubman Middle School. Super black. People wouldn't believe that, but Portland, you know, at at a certain time, some people will attribute it to redlining and discrimination, but I grew up in a little black village. Mm -hmm. Cops were black. My teachers were black. You know, the clerks at the grocery store were Black, social workers were Black. So I never had a sense that Portland or the Pacific Northwest wasn't a place for a Black girl. And you couldn't have told me when I was in middle school that a little Black girl couldn't do anything. I was, man, they loved us and poured Black love into us. So I felt very strong and really clear about who I am. And I loved it. Wow, that is so powerful, right? I love just community rich, right? Family rich, community rich. And right. um I can get a visual, right, of just you running down the street from one house to the next and, you know. Hair and braids with beads on the end, you know, double dutching in the street. Wow. This is a very verdant place. So we, I remember summertime picking blackberries that just grew wild here and making blackberry cobbler. And it's just a beautiful, organic, simple life mm-hmm. that I had. Wow. But the other upside is a lot of people don't realize that Portland was kind of a hotbed for for Black thinking in in the 70s and the 80s, especially around education. And um, Ron Herndon, who who was a a Black education activist, made the case to Portland Public Schools that Black children could achieve excellence without having to integrate into largely white schools. And I was the beneficiary of a lot of that activism. So our schools were excellent. We learned Swahili and Black history. So I, I said, came up during a golden era of public education. That's what it sounds like. Wow. And you mean, to your point, the community, talk about some of your biggest influences growing up. Yeah. So in in our family, every kid had a a chore or there was a skill that they needed to develop. And I, my skill was helping my grandfather garden for us to supplement our diet and 
you know, we, we didn't have a lot of money. So Oregon so verdant that I mean, everybody had a yard that we converted our backyard into a garden. So my job was to help him feed us. And that relationship with my grandfather, he fought in World War II and Korea, and he spoke German, English, a little bit of Italian. And when I started to show promise, he would speak to me in other languages. And as I started to show promise in math, he convinced the um, treasurer at the church to teach me double entry accounting and concepts of applied math. It was amazing. So my grandfather was a huge, huge influence on me. And I would say, as was my mother, she, she was a single parent of three gifted kids and somehow she made it work. I know. And I saw her get up and go to work and struggle to meet our needs. And I, and, and watching her work so hard was so influential in my life. I love that. I love that. Grandfathers, I tell you, are special, aren't they? <laughs> yes. yes, girl. And I tell you, he taught me to read. So he, he was in the war and was, was shot in the neck and mm. the bullet was never removed. And he just didn't have the kind of mobility that he needed to garden and also to read. And so he taught me to read early and I would come home from school every day and sit on the porch and read the politics section of the Oregonian to my grandfather and a bunch of other uh, of his friends from, from the army. And I, I literally would read to them every day. Wow. And that was that ability to read and understand politics. It became so important later in life. Absolutely. So you learned at a very early age and you had the opportunity to sit amongst the elders, so to speak, and have the wisdom just dripping off of their mouths. Right. <laughs> right. So the exchange we had was I would come home from school and they would be waiting for me with a snack, usually a bowl of chili or you know, slices of watermelon or grilled cheese sandwich. And so they made these older men would make me a snack for after school. And in exchange, I would sit and read to them. So it was love it. Love it. And moms, moms are so special. I know you and your mom, I, I love seeing you guys. You're like sisters that are best friends, right? Yeah. She's, she's 20 years older than me. So it, when I was young, it, it, that seemed close, but now I, I feel so blessed to have her young and healthy and vibrant. She's amazing. Love it. So when you think back on your experiences, and again, it sounds like you just had a, just a very rich childhood growing up, you know, you, and you had so many of the community leaders that invested in you, strong family. What stands out for you as maybe one of those defining moments where you actually discovered your roar? Yeah. So for me, so I went to King Elementary School, Tubman Middle School. And then at the point of going to high school, there was a group of about 10 of us who were recruited out of the historically Black community to attend an elite private school. And these programs at the time were popular around the country. Kids, you know, on the, on the Eastern seaboard would go to Phillips Exeter and, you know, the friends schools across the, the East coast. Well, I went to Catlin Gable mm-hmm. and that decision to leave the public school in order to, to have more opportunity was transforming because that experience, most people have that when they go to college. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was when I went to high school. And so every day I would, it was a day school, so it wasn't a boarding school. And I would get on the bus early in the morning in the Black neighborhood, take the bus through downtown and then up into this really privileged part of the city that's in the hills overlooking downtown. And so I started to see a wider view of the city rather than just the historic Black neighborhood, which is where I mostly stayed um, as a kid. And that made me acutely aware of class, race, privilege, gender. And I started to navigate systems of power at 13 in ways that most people 
get to wait until they're 17, 18, 19 to do. That was the first struggle with resilience and fitting in and having power and asserting myself. And ROAR stands for Reflection, Opportunity, Action, and Relationships. And that, that was the first time that I had to really cross the bridge and leave a place of comfort and into some unknown. And what I realized is that the rest of my life, that that would be the theme for the rest of my life, actually. Wow. Man, to have that experience at such a young age, right? There's, there sounds like there was more positive than what could some would perceive as negatives, right? In terms of the challenges that you might face. And so you navigate them. I love your perspective on just finding your voice, finding your place, and really understanding the power of resilience in a place where you were probably seen as different, but talented. Very different, you know, very different and, and not all in good ways. I mean, the the biggest challenge in that transition, and I think, again, for a lot of Black women going to college, you experience this is the social sexual part of it, of feeling beautiful when your kind of beauty is not what is at, you know, the top of whatever the social framework is that you're you're entering into. So at that time, I had to learn to express power in different ways. I learned to carry my body differently. I learned to code switch at, you know, at 13. And that was jarring. It was jarring to be a homegirl from around the way at a school with people I've known my whole life, surrounded by people who affirmed my blackness, and then to walk into a school that was literally the opposite of that, that that was a big challenge. And I still struggle with it to this day. I want to be honest about it. It was not a bridge that I crossed and then sort of left behind. I continued to wrestle with the residue of making that transition at an age where girls learn learn how to be women. Mm-hmm. I was learning how to be a woman in a largely white, uh, how to be a strong Black woman in a largely white environment. Absolutely. Well, and what you just said is so very real, right? In terms of as African-American women, some of us, we're still walking into new environments where we may not be um, the majority. And I don't want to say context switching or code switching, but we've got to learn how to uh, be successful in those environments. And that is not easy all the time because you, at least in my case, sometimes you feel like you have two full-time jobs. <laughs> yeah, two full-time jobs. And then all the self-healing and soothing yes. that comes with all the microaggressions and all the maybe not so microaggressions mm-hmm. that happen. So yeah, I agree with that. But you know, there's a certain point of success that I've, I've crossed over recently, finding people code switching to me. Wow. Right. So I'm not switching anymore. I, I now I, I pick out my afro and I cross the bridges and and it just is what it is. And it's strange to have people in meetings say to me things like, well, they're trying to code switch, but it's it's a little clumsy. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> right. Think, oh, Rakaya, why don't you marinate on that? Or hey girl, and I'm like, mm, no, mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. I'm not your girl. Right. Like this. <laughs> okay. Very so, interesting. Um, don't call me sis. No, we're not. That's not. How <laughs> oh my gosh. They, they pivoted just a little bit too far. Like, come on back. <laughs> that's not code switching. That's just irritating. Right. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's talk about how you built on that over your, your life and career, right? Because you've done just an amazing job um, navigating through places and spaces uh, where you've been the first. But I want to talk a little bit about something that I know that's that's near and dear to your heart. And uh, obviously, it started from when you were growing up and spending so much time with your family. You grew up in a community environment. And so I think 
in early in your life, somehow you got that bug, you got that itch, you got that passion, you developed the desire to want to make sure you were pouring out to others around you in your community. Who kind of influenced you to do so? My Aunt Margaret Carter. So she's my great aunt and she ran for the Oregon House when I was about seven years old. And remember, my role in our family was to read the politics section of the newspaper to the elders in the neighborhood. And the year that she ran for the Oregon House to be, I think, the first Black woman Mm -hmm. in the house, my job in the family was to, my grandfather uh, took all of his grandchildren out of the elementary school at King and assigned us different blocks in the neighborhood to walk the elders to the polling places and help them vote. Wow. And watching her run at seven years old and sitting in church basements, listening to her give speeches and Mm. and to have the community rally around a Black woman leader as the first, that was really important to me. And I think it cauterized Black woman power with community. Like to Mm. me, there was no path to take that, that didn't include some form of service to the places that I live and love. And, and, Over time, I've come in and out of commitment to that. And the last 10 years, I'd say it's become clearer. Now, it could be just that I have more time and and more influence and resources. But I would say Margaret was the big influence for me. I love that. I love that. And we have been, at least for me, I've been here for a little bit in Portland and had an opportunity to connect with her and adore her. (laughs) You spend five minutes with her, you're going to have a lot of laughter, a lot of fun, and you're going to feel inspired in just the five minutes. Can you imagine being a, a five-year-old little girl? Oh. Having her, she would engage with us like we were grown and she wanted to know our ideas. And it was, it was amazing. She was amazing. I can see and, that. Girl, let me tell you, she, she, you know, she's the public figure from the family, but I grew up in a family of women just like her. All of the women in my family were like wow. her. Oh my gosh. So it was like, it was like Amazons, right? right. And I, was born, <laughs> I was born to be you know, a badass woman and, and there's really no other, no other choice. I love it. I love it. Yep. Started at an early age. Well, tell us a little bit about, you know, your career journey. It has definitely been amazing. I mean, from working for one of the top hedge fund companies in New York to becoming the chief investment officer for Maya Memorial Trust. And I, I believe you're probably the first African-American woman. Oh yeah. And almost all these seats. So I'm the first CIO Meyer has ever had. I was the first woman at this, this hedge fund, but I started out as a, as a lawyer. I was an M&A lawyer and I, I didn't really want to practice law. I just didn't want to be poor. Right. <laughs> that was, <laughs> law was my path out of poverty. And I went to Stanford for law school. And, and when I showed an aptitude for math or quantitative subjects there, I ended up in a practice that was mergers and acquisitions. So I was a, a deal lawyer, basically. And I tell people, you know, the movie, The Fern, I worked there and I was one of those lawyers for almost a decade. Wow. (laughs) It was amazing. But I got to a point where it was clear that I wasn't temperamentally suited for that kind of work. Mm -hmm. Lawyers are advisors. And I wanted to be a principal. And I also felt like my temperament was more executive than advisory. And so over time, I, I'd be on these deals and, and the M&A lawyers make the acquisition happen and then they, then they, you know, parachute out. And I found myself wanting to be involved in business more than I wanted to be um, leading deals. So I left uh, the practice go to business school at Stanford and then I graduated from Stanford right as the Great Recession was beginning. 
And I, despite having done very well academically there, I struggled to find a job. And after leaving the practice right before I entered the partnership hunt, I didn't want to go back to the practice after spending, you know, another few hundred thousand dollars on business school. So I found a job in New York at a hedge fund that needed someone who was good enough at the math and who could negotiate deals. And I just was the unicorn that they were looking for. Mm -hmm. I turned out to be better at that than I ever imagined. I mean, I took that job, I wouldn't say out of desperation, but I certainly didn't go to business school to to become an investor. I went to business school to work in private equity. I thought that I would just take jump from the lawyer's role to the private equity role and keep doing the same type of work I had been doing for the previous 10 years. And then the world surprised me with this recession. So I went to New York and and I learned the advantage of being a black woman. That's why I was like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, hey, this is not all, <laughs> this is not all bad. So the thing I learned is when everyone was stressed out and markets were declining and, and investors were really concerned about the ethics of the people managing their money, what happened was as my white male peers were under tremendous pressure to conform because they had spouses who didn't work and they had kids in private schools and these big fancy houses in New Haven, you know, New Haven, Connecticut or wherever. I was just, you know, single living in a beautiful but modest apartment in Harlem and and I was black, so clearly an outsider. And what happened was I started to get tipped internally. Hmm. I became an information node. And that was because the guys couldn't say certain things because they were afraid of challenging or, you know, falling outside of the norm. And so instead of them speaking up, they would tell me. And once the C-suite realized I was the information node, they started to come to me for information. Wow. And when they started coming to me for information, then I had power and was able to move up through the organization to the C-suite. Wow. So that was my first lesson is in times of dislocation, when everyone is afraid, when things are uncertain, that is the time for Black women to step into being information centers and nodes, because then you have an opportunity, then nepotism and tradition and all those things go away when there's so much competitive pressure. So that was when I learned that lesson. And then moved up, we sold the fund and I had a a non-compete provision. So I took some time and came to the Pacific Northwest to hang out with my mom. I'd missed her after living in New York. And then I got, I got the tap to work at the standard and I ran that six and a half billion dollar fund for a number of years. I loved that job. And then from there, I got the tab to apply for the Meyer Chief Investment Officer job. Wow. I tell you, man, such powerful nuggets in that career journey. The biggest thing, all of it amazing, but information node, information center, information is power. Information is, especially during times of uncertainty, Mm. right? And the other thing that I learned is not just having, hoarding, sharing, understanding information, but also knowing the moments when to take risk, mm-hmm. right? When, when others are afraid, then it's time for you to take risk. When others are greedy, then it's time for you to back out. And that's true in investing. And that's, that's also true in the workplace. So times when there are massive changes in regulatory framework or lots of geopolitical uncertainty, like moments like right now. Exactly. Yeah, are good times for, for women, Black women in particular, to step up into leadership. Love it, love it, love it. So talk a little bit about 
you know, you're an anomaly in the space that you're in, right? There's very few African-American women in your capacity in, in any large company today, especially um, in institutional investments is what I should say for, for nonprofits. How did you find your voice in this industry that is so typically dominated by white men? Well, first, I, I don't think of, uh, so I'm an investor and whether or not it feeds Meyer and they go on to share it through philanthropy or, or it goes to another family foundation or to a pension fund. I don't really, those distinctions don't, don't matter to me, but I'll tell you where it started to, I started to find my voice mm-hmm. maybe five years ago, right. As I became the CIO at Meyer, I was in London. I did a Ted talk on this and I was going there to, um, to hear a few managers who wanted us to make investments. And we were considering something on the hundred million dollar uh, level. And it was, so it was pretty significant. Anyway, I go into this financial institution in London and, and they put me in the America's conference room because I'm an American. Right. And on the wall, they had these historic bond issues that they had. This is a really old English bank that they had made to American colonies. And I sort of scooched up close to some of those issues. They're like replicas of bond issues. And they were essentially bond issues for the slave trade, for the infrastructure that was required for the slave trade. Wow. Uh, Things like, you know, the Charleston port, there were special distribution machines for cotton and for the food that was produced, you know, all of the fleets of ships that carried slaves. I mean, those were infrastructure investments, right? The people were investments too, right? Right. Slaves were capital, but but, but what it helped me realize was, holy crap, there was a whole investment infrastructure. There was a, an investment industrial and complex around slavery wow. that, mm-hmm. that wasn't the people. And when I sat there, I was like, oh my gosh, I have some moral responsibility in managing capital. And I realized too, as I looked at the descriptions of the, of the ships that were funded through these bond issues, I was like, oh my God, I am the descendant of slaves, right? We were the original capital in the, in the American colonies. And here I am sitting atop of a hundred billion dollars I better do so. I have some moral responsibility here. Wow, absolutely. It was that day that I was like, all right, this is not just about capitalism and making money. What I think I can say now that I wasn't clear on five years ago was that I think the ultimate form of reparation will be the transformation of our capitalist system to reflect the wisdom of the people who were the original form of capital, right? To reflect our wow. our expectations. So that that day set me on a Woo. path of asserting myself. I love that. I love that. Wow, that was a kind of a crucible moment, a critical moment in your career journey, where it just not in a way that changed your perspective and lens, and really how you would move forward for the rest of your life, in a sense, in the work that you were driving. That's right. That day I did not make that investment um, in that company and I didn't feel bad about it. Mm -hmm. So it was the first time also that I got to the point where I could say, look, your values don't align with mine. And you should have Googled me before. (laughs) I started to learn how to throw elbows and to direct people in in the direct, the moral direction that capital has to go if it's going to be at the center of our our society. And and I threw a soft elbow that day. I've learned to, to push a little bit harder since then. Yeah, I love that. I mean, and you're using your your seat at the table, the head of the table to really, um, to your point, 
make decisions on where you're going to invest your money or the organization's money. And so you're challenging conventional wisdom. You're challenging the traditional power structure to say you must focus dollars here. Talk about some of those places and spaces that, you know, from that moment, you know, in London have led you to do things differently. Yeah. So, so that day, my thinking was really, I would say really basic in that I opted not to invest Mm -hmm. And the decision not to do something as a negative covenant, basically you're saying, I'm not going to do that. Divestment is, is, is a negative covenant. And what I realized over time was that in order for us to achieve a more equitable economic system, people like me needed to make affirmative covenant decisions. I needed to choose things I would invest in that would help to solve the problems, not just make decisions about what was bad, right? And so at that point, I started to think, how can I invest capital to disintermediate people, problems, attitudes, things I don't like, that we don't like, that don't help us achieve equality? And so I started to find managers of color to invest in, but simply investing in managers of color doesn't solve social problems, right? We just make black black and brown people wealthy. I don't know whether they'll actually do the things that we we want to, to do in society. So then I moved from just investing in black and brown managers for our money to saying, these kinds of investments in communities matter to me. I don't want to own real estate and extract wealth from people so that we destabilize society. Mm-hmm. So let's figure out how we can invest in housing in ways that give us bond type uh, risk and bond type return instead of equity type risk and equity type returns because that's destabilizing society. Or I'll say, look, I'm not going to invest in, we're not going to move significant amounts of capital into strategies unless you have more women and people of color at the board level. Absolutely. Like, I'm just not going to do it. Like I'm going to block, I'm going to block this money. So that I've learned to, to move more toward affirmative power than negative power. Wow. And so, you know, with that strategy, right, I mean, I'm sure you might not be winning friends and influencing people in in a a sense, right? How have you stayed the course, right? I'm sure, again, at the point I'm making is maybe not everyone um, may have bought into your strategy, your pivot of the strategy, your ideas. How have you had to stay the course in the face of maybe some pushback, for lack of a better term? Yeah, I will say it has just begun to get treacherous. Okay. Um, so this last year, I finally brought down the hammer on a few strategies that really deeply trouble me. And, and I want to tell you what they are because I, I do deal with some some adverse consequences. So we had been investing in in generally in, in, in insurance and financial assets. And if you double click on those assets, a lot of money is made on bail bonds and mm-hmm. bail bonds are insurance. It's just a financial product. It's a loan or, you know, an insurance policy. And I started to have real moral and ethical concerns about making 10%, 15% on providing capital for bail bonds. And ultimately decided that we would not do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And when I did not recommend that we continue doing that, some people came for me. Right, and they continue to come for me. Mm-hmm. Now, in my in my seat, there's really only one shield for that. It's excellence. So love it. I waited until I was among the top performers in the world to pull my guns on it. And 
So this year, you know, probably the toughest year from a, you know, people coming from for me stand, standpoint, uh, we just got league table performance on CIOs for July, in July for calendar year 2019. And my fund was the second highest performing fund in the country. So when someone comes for me, I just say, we are aspiring to ethical and financial excellence. And I got receipts. Right, right. So, uh-uh. So if you come for me, you better bring some receipts. So the pressure there is that you really have to be excellent. You, you can't just have the philosophy. You have to have the evidence of performance, at least in my line of work. I love it. I love it. Right. It's just check the scoreboard. Right. And then, right. Then holler back. (laughs) Right. Okay. Until then there's no conversation needed. Right. And if you're going to come for me, you know, you better take me out because I'm like on these issues of deep moral clarity, the force that I will bring is not just a desire for, for making more money. Right. It's, it's a desire for us to, to live out like a deeper humanity. Absolutely. like you better come, you better come deep and strong or else. Or be prepared, right. Be prepared for what right. <laughs> <laughs> because it won't be easy over here. Okay. Right. <laughs> and I'm sure you probably in, in that navigating that situation, right. Or, or people saying, Hey, I don't agree with your strategy. Um, performance has yielded results, right. And your decisions have yielded the right results. Did you have any sponsors and mentors along the way that says, Hey, back up, we have our back, right. Who are some of those people that may have said, Hey, we stand with Brakaya, so you can take a seat over there. Yeah, so on, on the issue of bail bonds, that for the first time in my career, I really listened to the ACLU and their perspectives on it. And there were some employee unions who deeply influenced me. So, so lots, lots of activists. Um, they're not my peer set, but mm-hmm. I would also say right now, Admire, the CEO Admire is a, is a Black woman. Yeah. And she is amazing. And it's amazing to work, work for her because that gives me a lot of license for alignment. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I know that she has my back. Our board chair is a black woman. So I just feel like in this case, as long as I'm delivering them excellence and alignment, I think they will have my back. But again, now that it's so many years in and we have, now I have a track record of performance. I just, like I said, just point at the scoreboard and just, you know, say, well, you can be mad in my line of work. It is, as important to eliminate underperformers and those that challenge your moral and ethical framework, it's more important to cut than to be among the best because so many people end up in long-term partnerships or investments where they have relationships with the parties and they are not willing to cut them when they're not performing. Yes. You know, like this is a performance-based business. And so my line of work, it makes it a little bit easier mm-hmm, to do this. Mm-hmm. Got it. Well, you know, in your role, right? I mean, obviously, over the last couple of years, again, we're talking about just check the scoreboard, people just check the scoreboard, right? But I know um, you may not have always had some winners, right? You're making investment decisions on billions of dollars. And investing requires a willingness to make mistakes and then having the ability to your point to move on. So generally, I mean, you're, you're definitely a high, high achiever, right? And so many women who are high achievers and in these roles, they've gotten there by following the rules, avoiding mistakes and being perfect and reliable as possible. How have you navigated that, you know, people's view of the need to be perfect and in, in your investment when maybe you've had some failures along the way and how did you learn from them? Yeah, I want to just say this point blank. I have not had the experience of having 
perfect performance or, or, or being having my career being so choreographed. Each opportunity has come because of a failure or some, some rejection or surprise. So coming out of business school, the great recession and the job market drying up, especially, you know, it's tough for black women in general in business, but certainly during a recession when a lot of institutions protected their own, it was really tough to get jobs at that time. Right. So I ended up in investing. It was a detour. It was not the destination that I intended. I ended up at a wonderful, amazing law firm. But if I think back, it probably wasn't my, my first choice. I studied African-American studies in, in college and, and, and the economics of, of Black cities. And, you know, that was amazing to study. But then leaving that and going into the practice of law or business, that, you know, it helped heal my Black soul. But it's not, it wasn't a part of my technical training. So all of that is to say mm-hmm. that... I don't have a career that has been one that was planned and choreographed and sponsored. I've scrapped my way up. And the, the most important characteristic in that is not the education. It's not the people that I know. It's not the schools that I went to. It's that I've been resilient, mm-hmm. right? I've failed. I've been rejected. I've been sabotaged. You know, I've had failures of judgment, failures of character. And I somehow just managed to put a bandaid on my scraped knee and have an ice cream sandwich and keep it moving. And that has been the key, I would say. Well, and I love that, right? I mean, as you begin to, as you were articulating that, I just thought about Maya Angelou and still I rise, right? Uh, No matter what is going on. And again, I believe to your point, that resilience was forged in you at a very young age, the desire to overcome whatever the challenges and obstacles and keep trying, you know, to your point, you get knocked down, you don't stay down, you get right. back up. Right, right. And, and and it could have been that I didn't have a choice. There, there are some other reasons why I think I was able to get back up, though. I controlled my fertility. Mm. So I didn't have children. And so I had a lot of like flexibility, right? And I was responsible with my money. So when things went sideways, I was never yes. in a nice position. But so I'd say the fertility thing and then the other part of, of moving up, again, I, I think I just had this intuitive sense about moments, m- moments for Black women to, I wouldn't say lean in, because we're so leaned in, okay. we're sort of <laughs> okay. leaning over the table, but for me, it's more like grab the wheel, mm-hmm. like to grab it and be confident enough to take the institutions that I worked for in the direction that I thought was best. Wow, I love that. I want to go back to something you mentioned around, you know, as a woman, we have the choice, right? To decide career, family, what have you, fertility, the likes. Did you ever feel any pressure or how did you navigate that, right? Many times I think if you're a mom, you know, people view you one way. If you're not, they view you another way and they make judgment calls either way. Have you had to navigate that in your industry? Yes, for sure. I mean, there's so many assumptions about women in the workplace where we conflate motherhood and uh, womanhood. And those are actually not the same. We're seeing that play out right now in the COVID era where lots of women are, are challenged, you know, to work through quarantine. But we're also seeing that mothers are particularly challenged in, in having to take care of their kids and, and work. So, so the burden is, is actually quite different. But I will say that one of the gifts to me was that as a young lawyer, I was, all of my friends were lawyers. Mm-hmm. All of my homegirls were lawyers. We were all head down. So the environment I was in was women 
who were unapologetically ambitious and smart. And so we never really talked about fertility, I would say for the first seven to 10 years after law school. But I had about 10 years after law school, and I would have been about 34 at that time, I did start to think about it. And at that time, I went to business school. And in business school, there was a class on power. And in the power class, the professor had a few sessions specifically for women. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we studied was that women who are successful in business plan fertility. That you can either be a woman who graduates from business school and devotes the early part of her life to children and then later to career, or you'd be someone who, you know, worked early and then had a family later. But what we learned is that you can't have it all at the same time. And we got a pretty clear message at Stanford Business School. You need to think about this. Mm. This will be important. Not just that, but that, you know, who you partner with will probably be the most significant business decision you make in your life. So I was focused on, I was thinking about what I what the order would be when I was in business school. And at that point I decided, and I, and by that point I was already in my thirties. I, I decided, well, I'm already almost sort of past my fertility peak. I'm going to focus on career for this first part. I also wasn't married at that point. Now with that said, now that I look back at it, I'm in my mid forties. Now I made a choice and the choice was to lean into work and vocation and to be a provider for my family. There's no woe is me right. on this story, right? It's more like, whoa, right. me. <laughs> right. I made a choice. <laughs> I made a choice. And so, but what I didn't understand at 25 or 35 that I do at 45 is that the price of that bargain increases over time. And I didn't get that. That, that option is, is, is not, the price does not stay flat. So I want to say to younger women, so by younger, I mean, you know, at any point during your fertile life, if you are fetishizing success and you see middle-aged women like me who've worked through the years where you had peak fertility, there's a price that we pay for that decision. So if we're going to cheer for women to achieve these great things, then we also need to be clear-eyed about what it takes and what the consequences are. The other thing I'll learn, and I hope younger women are listening to this, is that at 25, I thought that 80% of my decisions were about me and the choices I wanted for my life. And now at 45, I realize it's the opposite. And that my choices about fertility impacted my, my future husband. They impacted my mom's aging process. So to really think about my, myself and my choices in community I wish I had a better framework for it, but I don't think women in the nineties, you know, late nineties were this open about um, the choices and there weren't as many of us in the executive suite. True. Wow. Powerful, insightful. I talk about reflective, right? <laughs> Introspective. And I love the view that you share because it is something that for every woman, there is going to come a moment, right? To your point where you're going to make those decisions or you're going to have to be thoughtful about hopefully both and or either or, but be comfortable in whatever that choice that you make, but understand the impact is what I hear you say. That's right. And the broader impact, right. And, and really think about yourself at 65, not always just at 25, right. Cause you'll evolve over time. Wow. That is so true. That is so true. I want to ask you a little bit about 
you know, just your investing, your investment decisions. And again, I know it goes back to your core, your values and some some crucible moments where you made some you know, decisions and how you would focus your, your efforts. You really are working at the forefront of trying to find the right solutions in Portland, right? I know you came back because, you know, your heart's here, your family's here, and you really want to work on closing that wealth gap in Portland. And so you're at the forefront of efforts to promote and secure racial diversity in the boardrooms and in C-suites at all tables of power. And you've got a lot to be proud of because, you know, you're making a huge inroads in a lot of areas. Maybe talk about a couple of things that you're excited about that you're working on, or maybe that, you know, most recent successes in that space. Right. So five years into being back in Portland, one thing I realized coming home was that the black community had really been displaced from the spaces that we occupied, right? That some would have said that we were redlined into, but they, they also created a sense of place and home and, When I returned after being gone for 23 years, the places where we feel comfortable getting our hair done and buying, you know, brown sugar pantyhose and and getting the right kind of greens, you know, those places were gone. And I realized that some of the work I needed to do was in teaching our community that wealth is not just financial, Mm -hmm. that there are all these forms of capital that we hold and community capital or social capital is one part of it. Having place is a form of capital. So I've been working a lot on reviving a historic part of Portland, historic black part of Portland that, that, that had been acquired by eminent domain and essentially is freeways and parking parking lots right now that, that is in the central city. So one thing I feel really proud of is that I think we're beginning to express the value that wealth is not purely financial. Yeah. And that having access to wild spaces and green place, you know, green spaces here, that natural capital is, is a form of wealth, public being safe outside Mm. and not being subject to police brutality. That's a form of wealth. Having quality food is a form of wealth, access to education and, and you know, lifelong education is a form of wealth. So really expanding that definition of wealth and, and then pushing our society to think about wealth inequality in a broader sense. Yes. So I, I feel really good about that. And money's just just one, you know, one, one form, form of that. Yeah. Wow, that is so powerful. Love what you're doing. Love what you're doing in that space. And speaking about that, right? Really changing our paradigm and perspective around wealth. But also too, as you're doing that, you're interfacing with young people of color and you're you're expanding our mindset. Talk about you know, what you might do to encourage the next generation of, of youth and young adults, especially Black girls, to think about investing and to maybe think about careers in financial industry. Right. So I tell people who want to be activists, you know, so many of the, this next generation, they're so engaged in, in, in social activism that having skills, particularly quantitative or technical skills, mm-hmm. will probably be the most impactful thing you can do for social justice. Mm, say more. Yeah. You know, there's, there's so much of, of our systems of injustice that we perceive as being related to policing, for example, but a lot of that is actually capital. Mm-hmm. Like people like me will invest in uh, surveillance systems that police use and a lot of the violence or the, you know, the, the things that should be recorded aren't recorded, but there are people like me financing that institution, their uniforms, their cars, their mm. tanks, the surveillance systems, the 
you know, the bail bond system. There's a vast infrastructure of capital back there that is actually driving some of the externalities that the rent is so damn high because investors like me expect 17% returns from a multifamily, you know, residential property or even pollution, you know, that, that a lot of industrial pollution comes from people investing like me in industrial businesses and push them to optimize return to equity holders. So they, they jam their labor and then dump, you know, stuff into our environment that we all then have to deal with the consequences of. So I would say to a lot of young people that social justice, if you double click on that, it almost always leads you to capital. And so if we can control the capital, mm-hmm. we can control the outcomes. Wow. And that's one of the reasons why I left the law, because law was wonderful, but it was a form of advising mm-hmm. and form of advocacy. And the law is so important in our society, but it is capital that drives the externalities that our people struggle against. So true. So powerful. Wow. I love that. I love that. You know, and again, going back to your love for the city. I mean, I've been there for, I can't believe for almost 12 years, Portland's home now. Right. I'm like, I think we met earlier. I'm like, I'm not sure I'm going to say it. I've still been here. (laughs) It just captures you, right. It just captivates you. And there's so much opportunity here. And, you know, there's people who are passionate to your point. It's not just about the dollar bill in Portland. It's about the community. It's about the quality of life um, and the quality of life for all. I know it doesn't look like that right now with this crazy right. historic time that we're seeing in Portland with, you know, you know, our Black Lives Matter protests going on, which we all are in support of, right, over the last 80 or so days. And we've been in national headlines. But I know you have a hope and a dream yeah. for this city and its residents. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, so let me say that my, my desire to come home wasn't purely benevolent, right? Mm-hmm. So I believe for the next hundred years, at least in North America, the places that have abundant natural resources will be the most powerful, wealthy places in the country. Mm. As our climate heats up and yes. places in Miami, you know, or in Texas become too warm and water you know, the sea level rises, people won't be able to live there. Well, those people are going to move somewhere. Yes. And California is growing. It needs fresh water. At some point, it's it's going to have to come looking for natural resources um, in Cascadia. So I made the decision to be here because I love my family and I, and I love being from this place. I love being a Black Portlander, but also because I, I think the, the opportunity for wealth building is moving from synthetic wealth created in markets. Yes. And financial, you know, complex financial systems to, to actual natural assets, which are the things we have here. And in that regard, my family moved here from Louisiana. This wasn't their first choice. They moved from Louisiana first. A few people moved to St. Louis, but they wrote back to my great grandmother that they didn't think she'd like it because it wasn't wild enough. (laughs) She loved to fish my great grandmother and, and, and loved to be out outdoors. And, And so she had that intuitive sense about natural capital and that she wanted to move to a place to build a beloved community. Mm-hmm. And when she made her way uh, north and west from Louisiana to Portland, she wrote in her Bible, Dear God, I hope I've made the right choice in bringing my, my family to this place. Mm. And wow, this garden is so abundant yes. that you know she decided to stake claim to, to realizing what we were fighting for in civil rights, right? Some people think the civil rights movement was just about what happened in the American South. No, there were a lot of people who moved North in the great 
integration. And that was a form of protest that it's taken us 40, 50, 60 years mm-hmm. to fully understand. So our lives are better Absolutely. than my great grandmother could ever have imagined, right? Yes. And so if we're going to be here, then I want to live it. Oh, I don't no, want that's to right. be in this place. But then here's my thing too, too thinking about my great grandmother. As we are displaced from the places in a city that used to be black spaces that were safe, mm-hmm. a lot of people want to give up on the central city, right? As more of us move to the outer edges of the city yeah. because of cost and, and racism. But I say to people, they don't have to take it from us if we abandon it. Yeah, you're right. Our only inheritance is this fertile, beautiful place. And so I'm not going to abandon the central city. I'm not going to abandon the parts of the city that Black people built. I'm I'm not going to abandon our history in making Portland a financial powerhouse. This was a backwards little town, little grimy river town until Black men in particular came to work in the shipbuilding industry and the economy took off. Portland owes to Black migrants its economic sophistication. Wow. So... I'm not abandoning that. Absolutely. That's my inheritance, girl. That's all I'm going to get. (laughs) Right. We have to. Yeah. And so, so the other thing that makes me think about you in this place that my great grandmother was so wise, but she used to say to people who moved here, Portland, well, Oregon is a place to gather yourself, right? You come here as a black person. We're not judging if you're from Barbados or from Martinique Mm -hmm. or from North Africa or from Ghana or from Nicaragua. Like, just bring a pound of meat to the party and and we're going to work this out. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And so that kind of flexible, open Blackness, which some people find off-putting, actually, it releases people of some of the rigid social expectations. And so you can gather yourself. You can... You can figure out what you'll be and what matters to you in this garden. I love yes, it. I tell you. You know, again, as you begin to reflect on that story with your great grandmother, yeah. it just reminded me of the time that you, you always create a space for people to gather. And I think that was one of the first times that I met you where you opened up your home for us to gather with the Dream Girls cast. Oh, that's right. Yes. That oh. yes. I mean, so you are your great great grandmother's dream. Right, yeah. that has come to manifestation in all of its fullness. All the things yeah. that have been deposited in you, in your your grandmother, your mom. I mean, it just I can see it all come full circle with you. Thanks for sharing that story. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you were there. That was one of my favorite. I love having parties too, girl. I will party <laughs> for the eclipse, I'll have a party for winter solstice. <laughs> and you do throw the best ones. So thank you so much. <laughs> Well, you know, and as we began the conversation, we talked about the importance of today, right? And um, I know you and I also talked about someone we love, Julie, Diana Ross, right? You're wearing your I'm going to win shirt, right? Yeah. <laughs> and um, today is Black Women's Equals Pay Day, right? And uh, we're very, very reflective of that because it's, it's super important, right? It's a date in which a Black woman must work into the year to earn what her white male counterpart has earned in the previous year. It's a mouthful, but it also is just like... Like, really, like, this is too much. I mean, it just means that for every dollar a white man earns, Black women earn 62 cents on the dollar, which means over the course of a 40-year career, and we're working a lot of hours, that they, you know, we will lose nearly $1 million due to this pay inequity. And we know you and I totally agree. We're aligned. This is unacceptable. 
if companies want to do better by women, they must also do better by Black women. You know, I know this is something that you're passionate about. Why should everyone be concerned about this? And maybe share your thoughts on this, you know, momentous day, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, so one thing people struggle with is scale. So if each one of us, over over the course of our lives, misses out on a million dollars of wealth, Mm. accumulate that to all the Black women you know. My God. Think about, yeah, all of the homes that could have been owned, all the educations that could have been paid for without debt. Imagine all the wealth that could inure to the benefit of our communities, the investment in our neighborhood, small businesses. So the cumulative effect of this is the financial equivalent of a knee on the neck, right? Yes. And this is crazy, right? And and it's a form, I wouldn't say slavery, but I would say of, of some sort of chattel commitment because one hour of productivity is not different, whether it's a male, you know, white male or black female. Mm-hmm. So that, mm-hmm. you know, 38 cents that we don't get, it's going somewhere. You're right. Just not to us. And so I also believe that if black lives matter to people and black communities matter, then you have to have a feminist agenda mm-hmm. because we know so many families are headed by black women. So you cannot say that you want to help black people without also having a feminist agenda. That doesn't work in my opinion. The other thing that gets me is black women are also the most educated demographic in, in the United States right now. Absolutely. So, yeah, we're, we're facing this pay disparity at the same time that we're achieving education at a level that's really unprecedented. So, I mean, from, from a personal wealth standpoint, there are profound consequences for our communities. There are profound consequences. And, and I'd say personally, uh, you know, I'm one of those women. I'm under, you know, I'm underpaid compared to, to my peers at success level. That, that I've achieved. And I, w- I would say that what's become clear to me is that I won't ever be paid fairly until I run, run until I own my own business, right? Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. And being able to talk about that openly, you know, because people see me and think, oh, everything's great. Everything's perfect. No, I still struggle with these conversations about compensation. Yes. I- I'm almost always pushing back on a system that's trying to take me down to 62 cents on the dollar. And it's, I would say, probably the biggest challenge in my life right now, ensuring that not only that I have that equal pay, but that all of the people who work for me have equal pay, Mm -hmm. that there are systems that I'm operating in that I allow them to do this to other women, right? So it's a really, really big challenge. Here's the other issue I have with it. The United States, its only advantage on most developed economies of the world like China or emerging India, is the participation of women in the workforce. Our men are matched, girl. Our men are matched by men in China and men in India. You're right. Mm -hmm. It's the educated, productive female workforce that literally makes America great. Yes. Yeah. Right. And in keeping Black women in particular engaged in our economy is not a feminist issue. It's a national security issue. Wow. Right. Can you imagine if Black women, even 10% of us, stopped doing this, right? Yeah. Think about all the schools and all the bus drivers and and all the folks who are working in retirement homes. Absolutely. uh, Executives, all the professors and teachers. I mean, it would be profoundly destabilizing. Yes. Very negatively impactful, right, on our economy. Exactly, girl. So I, I have said, this is, not, again, not a feminist issue. I'm not asking you for equal pay at this point. This is a national security issue, and it's in everyone's interest that we create equity 
at least when it comes to productivity and work, because that is America. That's our thing. Wow. So I feel strongly. I could go on and on about well, that. Well, I love stuff. how you unpack that and just your perspective on it, right? Just the uh, the metaphors, right, that you share. Oh, my gosh. When you think about it that way, you're right. It, it is like a knee on the neck. It's crazy. And I mean, just think about the American military, how many black women are in oh. virtually our entire logistics system. And probably yeah. a third of those folks who run logistics for our military are black women. Absolutely. Well, anyway, definitely a conversation. No, and I think this is more a conversation we need to continue to have. And I love to your point that it's not just today, and we need to be more aware of it as, as we're in leadership positions that we're advocating for every woman, especially women of color right? And making sure that they're getting the the pay that they deserve. And so I want to talk to you about something that I know we're all excited about, right? For the first time in history, um, we have a presumptive vice presidential nominee who is a female of color, Senator Kamala Harris. I tell you, I know this week has been just a fantastic week, right? Joe Biden is a presumptive Democratic nominee for president. And he was recently quoted as saying, this morning, when the announcement was made, right? This morning, all across the nation, little girls woke up especially little black and brown girls that so often feel overlooked and undervalued in their communities. But today, today, just maybe, I love this. They're seeing themselves for the first time in a new way as the stuff of presidents and vice presidents. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. I mean, we all probably couldn't go to sleep um, that earlier this week, you know, what does this make you think about, right? And how do you think that the trajectory of your life, which has been astronomical in and of itself, might have been different if we had this opportunity to see this take place when you were a little girl? You know, I, I do feel like there are moments of boosts, right, that come over the course of a lifetime. You know, the first for me was watching old videos of Shirley Chisholm when mm-hmm. she ran for president, right? And I've learned, I've subsequently learned that she actually wasn't the first. There's a woman before her. Or the moment of Geraldine Ferraro, right? Yes. Being the vice presidential nominee. So I think there are, for all of us, these boosts, as long as our identities are broad enough to be boosted by, by women in those roles. But there is something really special about our executive leadership at a national level. Mm-hmm. And to hear her voice, because, you know, she has, she has the speaking rhythm of a homegirl, right? I mean, it's intelligent, but I hear, <laughs> I hear our people in her. And so I just seeing myself reflected that way and seeing my younger cousins reflected at the highest executive level, to me, there's never been anything like that. It also makes me want to push with force. Yes, beyond just representation, but again, equal pay to closing wealth gaps. It, it makes me feel inspired to reach even more. And it's clear that our work, we still have so much work to do, but yes. I have been feeling, I felt relief when he announced that she was his partner. I was building stress because I thought, well, if he picks a black woman, you know, there's going to be all this racist, sexist, you know, vitriol that mm-hmm. comes out after which has played out but then I thought if he doesn't then there's going to be some racist sexist vitriol that comes out and so it, it is a relief that he made a decision and it also is a relief to feel black women around the world get information yes right? all just like we're like all right now we are moving forward yes and it's not perfect right you know she's a prosecutor Joe's got some issues but but this moment in American history is I heard someone say it's not like a marriage, it's like public transportation and that you just get on the bus going in the direction you want to go. It's not going to be perfect and that's the way it is. But I'm just, I'm so inspired by her. Yes. I'm 
I'm so inspired by him choosing her. Mm-hmm. I'm so inspired by all of the women now that are rising up to be her chief of staff. And yeah. Just amazing. I love it. I love the visibility of it. Right. Love it. I'm telling you, and I love what you just said, right? All Black women are getting in formation. I mean, we are putting the full force, the might, the energy, the passion behind Kamala, behind yeah. you. It's like we were just waiting on the moment for the decision to right. drop, right? And now we're organizing. Okay, we're right. strategizing. <laughs> That's girl. We are going to organize it. And what I like about that, again, is that our energy, our genius, our collective work is now going toward an affirmative covenant. We're mm-hmm. saying we are for this thing. We're going to support that, not merely against brutality. Right. And so I just, I love that it's like momentum, forward, powerful momentum. Absolutely. Well, listen, I know you and I could talk all day, but I'm, I have to let you go. <laughs> Before I do that, is there anything uh, that I didn't ask you that you might want to leave with the audience today? Well, I'd like to leave with you and the audience how much it has mattered to me to see you. Oh, to feel your brilliance and humility and devotion and to see the, the, the brownness of, of our beautiful skin and your, the genius that you've navigated corporate structures. I, I want you to know that I, that I love you and I respect you so much. And I wish I could say that to you every day. I so receive that. Oh my gosh, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> um, the feeling is mutual. Thank you so much. Um, yes. You always speak into my life. You always speak into my soul when I see you. And I just thank you for just the light, the force that you are. You're always a beacon. We know we can just look to you <laughs> and, and really refill our cups because you always make sure you have enough to give out to all of us. And so thank you for um, just the impact that you're driving in Portland and the model of excellence that you are for all of us. And you know, we're here for you. We're just a phone call away. Love you dearly. Now, before we hang up, I, I do have a couple quick questions, and then um, I want to make sure the audience knows how to reach you. So tell us how they can stay connected to you. I'm easy to find. I'm the only Rakaia Adams <laughs> in the United States. All right. So LinkedIn, so, uh, Twitter. LinkedIn, Twitter. I'm on Twitter. Um, I use my name. I don't I know yeah. cute handles. I want you to be able to find me. And then I'll find a vision. It's pretty easy. If you just Google out find a vision, it'll, it'll pop up and you'll see what we've been working on. Perfect. So I'm going to wrap up with just a, a lightning round of questions. I didn't tell you about this, but you know, but we're going to do that. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you five questions. One is um, maybe tell us what your favorite food is. Ooh, probably <laughs> fruit, mangoes. Okay. I love it. Mangoes or persimmons. Yeah. Okay. Do you have a guilty pleasure? Yeah, food or entertainment. Okay, I love it. Same here. And I doubt you get a chance to watch a lot of TV, but I'm going to ask anyway. What's your Netflix addiction if you have one? Girl, last night at 10 p.m., Netflix recommended this show called Indian Matchmaker. Are you watching it too? (laughs) I'm like, okay, there's some colorism in here. It's a little bit crazy, but that's perfect. So I ended up working, watching it for a few hours last night. I love it. Okay. Favorite vacation spot or maybe the next spot that's on the map that you want to get to? My favorite spot is Kauai. I love Kauai. I love Hawaiian Islands. But I really, really, really want to get to Petra and and the Middle East. Mm, I love it. I love it. There's a marathon there that I've been wanting to run. Oh, awesome. Love it. So maybe a book you're reading or maybe a favorite book of yours? A book I'm reading right now. What am I reading right now? I'm reading a book called Overstory right now. That's a it's a a story, a series of stories about trees in America. Mm. And I'd say my favorite book is probably Sula. 
All right. Love it. Love it. All right. Well, we have enjoyed chatting with you thoroughly. I have just enjoyed my time. And so anyway, I'm going to let you go and look forward to catching up soon. I look forward to it too. If I can do anything for you, let me know. I will. I will. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Roar. Tune in next time for more awesome talks with people at the top. Don't forget to subscribe and share so you're the first to know when our newest episodes are available. Until next time, 